if we look back five years when we first started, it was actually really not obvious. It was it was actually a bad idea. We are creating a drag and drop way just that developers can code faster. And developers are allergic to drag and drop. They hate drag and drop. As a developer, if you told me, hey, you should build this website via, you know, a drag and drop way, for example, I'd be like, oh, that's not for me. Like, that's for marketers. Like, I would never touch a drag and drop tool. I'm a hardcore engineer. Like, I write code. And so the idea of Redux sounded like quite a bad one, which is we're going to teach people who already know how to code, but we're going to change their mind about how they should code. In fact, we're going to sort of tell them that drag and drop is a better way of coding, which is completely antithetical to sort of their mental model of how coding is done. And this is where I think a first principles thinking is so interesting, because we had maybe a few of these core beliefs that were, I think, quite controversial or non-obvious that a lot of people would disagree with at the time. And that has now led us to success. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In-Depth. I'm Todd Jackson, and I'm a partner here at First Round, and I'm guest hosting a few episodes this season all about finding product market fit. Today's episode is with David Shu, the founder and CEO of Retool. Retool is a low-code platform for developers that makes it fast and easy to build custom internal tools. Because of this focus on internal tooling, Retool has perhaps flown a bit under the radar and may not grab all the splashiest headlines. But as you'll hear from David today, the company has a fascinating founding story and counts fellow YC companies like DoorDash, Brex, and even a Fortune 500 company as some of their very earliest customers. In fact, by the time Retool launched on Hacker News, the company already had $2 million in ARR. Five years later, the company is now valued at $3.2 billion and has over 500,000 apps built on its platform, with customers ranging from big tech players like Amazon and Pinterest to the NFL and NBC Universal. This makes their path to product market fit sound remarkably seamless. But let's go back to the beginning. We start our conversation by talking about where the idea for Retool came from, while David was juggling a few different side projects. As the idea for Retool began to crystallize, David explains why tons of people thought that the product idea actually sounded like a dud and that no developer worth their salt would use a drag and drop coding tool. But David persisted down this path and we explore why he had such strong conviction in the developer audience rather than listening to the consensus at the time and try to build a product for non-technical folks. Next, we talk about the process for honing retools messaging and finding language market fit, which took some trial and error. Here, David has tons of advice for early stage founders and makes a strong case for prioritizing cold outbound to constantly test and iterate on your message to find what sticks. Finally, we end on the piece of oft-repeated startup advice that David regrets listening to in the early days, as well as his playbook for creating incredibly tight feedback cycles with your early customers. I hope you enjoy the interview and David's strong first principles approach to starting and growing Retool. And now, onto my conversation with David. So welcome to the show, David. Hey, how's it going? Great. So Retool launched in 2017, and I know the company has seen tremendous success since then. You raised a $45 million Series C 
backed by some great folks, the Collison brothers, Sequoia, Alad Gill, and a really impressive list of customers, Allbirds, DoorDash, Amazon. And really, I think Retool has established itself as the go-to platform for developers building internal tools. And so when people hear stories like this, David, I think they have a tendency to assume that the road was always smooth. But we know that's never really how company building works. And so today I want to zoom in on the details with you from the early pivots you had to make to your path to finding product market fit. So to kick things off, uh, would love to rewind to your days in college at Oxford. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it was a lot of fun. So I actually grew up in Palo Alto. So sort of even going abroad to study pretty far away was kind of a big decision. I ended up there actually because uh, I really wanted to study both comp sci and philosophy. There are very few sort of schools in the U.S. that offer that. The one school that offered that actually was Stanford, but I grew up in Palo Alto, so I really did not want to go to school at Stanford. <laughs> to some extent, I knew I would be in tech afterwards, and so I was like, I should get out of here, get out of SF Bay Area for maybe a few years while I still can. And so I ended up at Oxford, mostly because they had one degree, which was philosophy and computer science together. Oh, that's so cool. They actually have a joint degree in that. They do. Yeah, it was interesting because I think I had probably started coding, uh, I don't know, maybe in high school, something around that. But coding was something that, you know, you can sort of pick up by yourself. So it wasn't really something that I necessarily needed to study. That said, I really wanted to study philosophy. Ever since uh, maybe from a young age or something, I think I was always interested in finding what potentially the meaning of life could possibly be. And that motivated me to study philosophy. Now, it turns out when you study philosophy, you find there are sort of so many more questions than there are answers. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. And so studying computer science and philosophy together, has that informed the way that you think about building Retool or has that informed the way you think about building? Well, certainly. I think philosophy is surprisingly applicable. It may not seem very applicable to sort of building a company or even day-to-day life or whatever else, but for me, I think philosophy really taught me sort of what first principles thinking looks like. Uh, So when you think about, for example, what is a number? What is zero? You know, what is one? What is two? What is addition, for example, et cetera? That stuff is really interesting. And I think when you think about company building, to some extent, uh, you kind of want to think of that way as well, which is, you know, companies five years ago looked like this or 10 years ago looked like this. What has changed? What are the first principles that sort of lead to X being this way or Y being this way? And for example, in the case of Retool, visual programming, programming in this drag and drop way is not a new idea, actually. It's been around for maybe 20 or 30 years. And yet it's actually always failed before. And so thinking a bit about why it is that an idea would work or would not work 20, 30 years ago, but could potentially work today and sort of thinking what the differences of the world are have changed in the past 20, 30 years, I think is super interesting. So thinking from first principles, what philosophy really teaches you, but it really can be used in a surprising amount of ways. Okay, so let's talk about the idea for Retool. And I know that while you were at Oxford, you were working on side projects. And so where did the idea first come from? We had worked on a bunch of side projects when we were in school, five or 10 different side projects. And every time you work on a side project, you basically have to build internal tools. And we were like, well, you know, every side project is different. So every internal tool, you know, basically needs to get built from scratch. But we were spending probably half our time, half our engineering time building internal tools. And we were engineers. And so as engineers, we were like, there's got to be a faster way of doing all of this. So that's kind of where the core idea of Retool came from is, hey, could there possibly be a much faster way of doing all of this stuff? If we think about how programming has been done over the past maybe 20, 25 years, there's actually been very little innovation in how programming has actually been done. We were thinking, you know, could there be sort of a higher level way, if you will, of building all this internal software? And that's where the idea of Retool first came from. When we first started Retool, it was actually really for other like two or three person companies. You know, we thought Retool could be this fast way that a three person company could use to build their internal tools. After launching Retool, we discovered, however, that actually maybe something like 50 or 60% of all the software in the world actually is internal facing. And actually big companies spend 
practically all their time building internal tools. So that really, I think, validated the idea as well. Okay, great. So you had this notion that internal tools were something that everyone had to build, surprisingly large percentage of all software created in the world. But what was like the very first step? You had this idea, internal tools. What was the first thing you did or the first thing that you built? If you've built you know, 20, 30 internal tools, you have a pretty good sense. Basically, all internal tools are basically tables, buttons, text inputs. And so the initial version of Retool, even though Retool is sort of this generic, broad programming environment, if you will, today, the first thing we did was basically say, hey, we want to build a table component, a text input component, and a button component. And so when you, for example, uh, you can load a table of your users, and then you can search your users, and you can do something with that user. So maybe you can deactivate that user or activate that user or something like that, basically. And so that was kind of the first uh, version or prototype of Retool, if you will. And that was surprisingly applicable uh, because uh, the sort of initial companies that we sold to, basically all their use cases were, were tables and they're taking action on the table and searching the table. And so that turns out to be a surprising percent of even all internal tools. Like that's probably like 20% of internal tools is basically tables plus buttons plus forms. And do you remember the first person besides you and your team that tried Retool, like the first couple testers that you had? Yeah. So when we were starting Retool, we were in YC at this point. So this is probably maybe, I want to say June, I want to say of 2017, something like that. The initial companies that used Retool were basically other YC companies. At every sort of YC dinner, I think it was every Tuesday night, we'd be annoying and try to get everyone to use Retool, basically. Actually, our first two customers were these two other YC companies. One was starting a tutoring business. And so they had used Retool to sort of manage all their students, manage all their tutors. And you can imagine that basically is you know, a bunch of tables, a bunch of forms, a bunch of buttons to assign you know, tutors to students, stuff like that. Another one was a app that allowed drivers to drive for both Uber and Lyft at the same time. And they had a lot of internal tools to sort of manage the billing, the subscriptions. Every time Lyft changed their app, for example, they would use Retool to sort of figure out what has changed and how they need to change their app and reaction to that, et cetera. So those are our first two customers. Cool. And how far along was the product at that point? You know, we get into these conversations with founders about like, what does your MVP look like and how done does it need to be? How done or how polished was Retool at that time? Oh, it was not very polished at all. There are features that are in Retool today that seem sort of so basic and so maybe so, so sort of core to Retool that did not exist at that point. So for example, the second customer I mentioned there, they were the ones who got us to build APIs integrations in Retool. So now at this point, generic API is the second most popular integration in Retool today. It did not exist actually when we uh, sold Retool to this customer. They were like, hey, Retool seems really cool, but I don't actually have a database. <laughs> I only have APIs. Can I connect uh, Retool to my APIs? And we were like, that's a great idea. Let us come back to you tomorrow. It'll be built. And we stayed up and we built it and we came back and uh, it worked. So early days of Retool were very fast iteration cycles. Oftentimes, like, you know, one day or one night or something, we'd come back with a product and oftentimes it worked, oftentimes it didn't. And we have to iterate, you know, uh, from there too. But it was a pretty uh, immature product at that point. Got it. Were, were those first few customers happy with Retool, like kind of right off the bat? Or did it take some time to get the product to a state where they were really pleased with what it was doing for them? When we started Retool, uh, so from the zero to, let's say, a few million dollars in ARR, our goal always was happy customers, was how do we get to 100 happy customers? Because the idea basically is if you can find 100, you can probably find 1,000, you can probably find 10,000, you can probably find a million, you know, et cetera. So our goal was not even revenue at that point. It really was, can we get customers to be happy? And if they are happy, presumably we can find other people like them, basically. And so given that sort of was our North Star metric in the early days, those two customers, they probably got to happy within maybe a week or two, I would say. It wasn't instantaneous. Like, for example, if you, uh, the second customer literally could not use Retool because we didn't connect to APIs. And so 
came back the next day with API connections, and then I think they had a few more feature requests, and then we built those feature requests. But within you know a week or two, I would say they were happy customers. Very cool. I want to ask a few more questions here because I think it's an area you know where so many founders live is like, how do I get from my first two customers to my first ten customers? Talk us through that. Like, how long did that take for you? How much did the product change during those days? What was that like? So this was probably around again, maybe June of 2017. We're going through YC. At that point, we probably had maybe a fewish customers, so maybe three, four, five, something like that. Basically, those we had gotten via sort of outbound. Essentially, we were you know sort of outbounding in person, if you will. But uh, the next few customers came via email outbounds. So we were in winter 17 uh, for YC. Brex was also in winter 17. They became an early customer, and they became an early customer. So we emailed them. I sent them an email, uh, and I think Pedro and Enrique. Uh, had said, hey, internal tools are indeed a challenge for us because they're a fintech company. They have a lot of operational things going on. Uh, and I remember visiting their office. Uh, I think at this point, Rex is maybe, maybe 10, 15 people, something like that. And I was thinking like, wow, this is a huge company. <laughs> you know, I can't believe they're 10, 15 people already. Uh, and we sold to them. Uh, and so it was very much outbound, basically. And it was maybe very customer driven in the sense that we were interested in sort of hearing what their problems were. And But it turns out the problems were actually relatively alike across different companies. DoorDash is the early customer of ours, for example. And believe it or not, sort of the problems that a DoorDash had was actually pretty similar to the problem that a Brex had. It was actually pretty similar to a problem that, you know, sort of the other companies that I had mentioned uh, had as well, which is they had engineers, but their engineers wanted to focus more on building the customer-facing side of the business. For a company like Brex, for example, their engineers are working on how can we sort of create the card product or the banking product, for example. They wanted to be less focused on internal software, uh, internal tools specifically. And so uh, for them, the value prop of Retool was, oh, with something like Retool, I can actually go replace, you know, whole engineering teams. Now my engineers can move a lot faster, sort of the first order effect. And the second order effect is once I have really great internal software, I can serve my customers a lot better. I can be operationally excellent uh, myself. And so it turns out that value prop was sort of pretty broadly applicable for a company like DoorDash, for example, it was similar, where they themselves, you know, have sort of an iOS app, an Android app, a web app they want to go work on. And that's what's really impactful for the business. But uh, they have a lot of internal operations they need to go and build. Uh, the first team we uh, had sold to was uh, our champion's name was Rohan, who was on the dispatch team. And you can imagine on the dispatch team, there's a lot of internal tools to build. A lot of what has made DoorDash so successful in the past few years is really being operationally excellent. And I like to think that sort of Retool played a small part in allowing them to have sort of bespoke custom software that enables them to be operationally excellent. So the value prop, I would say, early on was sort of pretty ironed out already. And then it was a matter of finding more customers. And the path we took to find more customers was outbound emails. That probably took us from maybe 2 to 20 to 30 to 40 customers. And so by the time we had launched Retool on Hacker News, I think this is maybe in 2018, so almost a year after, maybe August 2018, you can probably still find it on Hacker News. By the time we launched it, we had maybe around 40 or so customers, maybe around a million, $2 million in ARR already. So at that point, so to go back to the... Um, happy customers goal, we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was actually replicable. And so that was why we had so many outbound sales, because we really wanted to prove to ourselves that we could go find, you know, we've built a product that is not just useful for one company or two companies or, you know, five customers or 10 customers, but instead is useful for, you know, 30, 40, 50. And then once we, you know, had 40 happy customers, we were pretty convinced, you know, something was going on here and that if we could find 40, presumably we're ready to launch basically the initial version of the product. And so ever since launching the initial version of the product, Retool's basically all been inbound since then. But before that, it was all outbound, actually. 
I got a couple follow-ups on that because you covered some really interesting ground there. So one is you guys were really far along in terms of customers and ARR when you quote unquote launched. How come you waited so long to launch? I think for us, we are in the sort of developer tool space. As a developer tool, I think developers have very high standards in the sense that they are not interested in using products that are buggy, don't work, have you know crappy user experience, etc. And so we wanted to launch only when we were confident. And it took a while for us to build that confidence. I think we had talked to Peter from Segment maybe three months after we had uh, first started Retool or something like that. And I think Peter's experience of product market fit was something like, once you have it, it's sort of so visceral, you immediately feel it. I think he described it maybe as like a geyser or something like that, like it just explodes, basically. We honestly never felt that. I mean, maybe part of it is because we were outbound, so it was kind of hard to feel that necessarily. But I remember thinking with our early, you know, customer number five, customer number six, number 10, number 12 or something, I remember thinking like... Is war building actually a sort of replicable product? I wasn't sure, actually. And so every customer that we had gotten, you know, customer number 12, 13, 14, number four, number five, almost kind of felt like this is the last customer we're ever going to get, basically. Like sort of every use case honestly seemed pretty different, actually. And you can kind of see why, like, you know, for a company like DoorDash, for example, building logistics tools to manage drivers and orders and stuff like that. That's pretty different from Brex, which is, for example, managing KYC or AML or managing credit limits, for example. And that's pretty different from a tutoring company that's matching tutors and 2Ds, for example. So I remember thinking, as we're working through these early, you know, 5, 10 customers, that sort of all these cases are so different. Can we actually serve these customers and make them happy? And it turned out, you know, by the time we got 30, 40 customers, we sort of had built up that confidence to say, hey, if there are these all 40 different use cases, they're all built on top of retail and they're all happy customers, and then we're actually pretty confident that if we launch this product, it will actually resonate. Part of it also was also iterating on messaging. When we were talking with early customers, we would say things that were pretty out there just to sort of see what people thought about it. So the initial way we pitched retool was um, we said it was Excel-like with higher order primitives. Uh, and no one, it turns out, knew what that meant. Uh, <laughs> that one didn't land. Yeah, that did not land. But I mean, as a developer, for me, actually, I was like, that's kind of how I thought about it. Retool is this you know, sort of higher-level programming language. And with Excel, primitive is the cell, which is dependent on other cells. You can put formulas inside them. You can put data inside of them. For Retool, uh, instead of a cell as a base component, the React component is the base component. And so you can put things in React components, and they can depend on each other. And so you can sort of say, hey, this React component depends on this other React component, for example. And so... To me, it was quite obvious that we should pitch Retool as Excel-like with higher order primitives, but we discovered that was not a good pitch uh, for the product uh, to most of our customers, and that did not resonate. So I think iterating of the messaging, iterating of the product, iterating of the use cases, that was what the early customers helped us with. Sometimes we think of that as language market fit. When did you start to see that? Like, What was the language that you could tell was starting to resonate with folks? This is one reason why we really love Outbound, or at least Outbound for early stage startup is so good, because it gives you a very good sense on how resident something is, especially cold Outbound. Because if you get a warm intro by an investor, for example, oftentimes people will take the call, uh, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, sounds interesting, uh, yeah, we'll love a demo, uh, maybe send me some you know, login details later, I would love to play around with it, something like that, which is very non-committal, very vague. And that actually is very harmful to an early stage startup, because um, that makes them think that they may have product market fit, even though they don't. This sort of warm intros can be quite dangerous, basically, because they sort of give you false optimism or false hope. 
we uh, always wanted to do cold outbound because we thought that would sort of be a good way to prove out whether the product was landing or the messaging, like you said, was landing. I remember there was one time we had done a cold outbound to a company called Rappi. They're kind of like DoorDash of Latin America. I think there are maybe a few thousand employees now or something like that. We emailed them. I think they were around a thousand or so. And to be honest, like when I sent the email, I didn't expect anything. I was like, let's try and see what happens. And I think within maybe 15 minutes, their CTO had replied saying like, hey, let's get on a call. And I was like, cool. How about tomorrow? And he was like, how about today? And I was like, great idea. How about today? In fact, that was maybe the first sign that the messaging was really resonating. The fact that the CTO of, you know, a thousand person company says, hey, let's get on a call right now because this problem that you described of internal software, internal tools is so important to me that I want to take time, you know, 30 minutes, I will reschedule a meeting to talk to you right now. I think that was sort of good evidence that the messaging was ready to landing. So after that, we're like, okay, well, clearly building internal tools faster messaging is really resonating. Let's go apply that to other companies that continue to work. And so that was the early iteration that really worked. And if you go to our website, even today, that is the core of our messaging today, sort of build internal tools insanely fast. So build internal tools faster. Rather than Excel with higher order primitives, that was the very concrete, right? Very value <laughs> proposition oriented. That's right. Yeah, that turned out to be a lot more effective. Another question I had, David, you know, as you were talking through that path from, you know, two customers to 20, 30, 40, you know, one observation is that you, you said the value proposition was very consistent, but the use cases were very different. And so what did that mean for you in terms of prioritizing features? Like you've got one customer asking you for one thing, and you mentioned like the API was based on a customer request. Another customer asking you for another thing. I know that's a question that a lot of founders have of like, what do I build for which customers and how do I prioritize all these things? So this is actually a good example sort of, I think, where first principles thinking comes into play. Our customer has always been the developer. And that has a lot of consequences that may not be sort of immediately obvious. And this is why we believe a lot more in retools market, in no-code market, for example. And what having the developer of the customer enables you to do is developers actually don't really want you to do professional services, for example. They actually want to build things themselves. They want you to give them the building blocks so that they can assemble those building blocks into what they want. They don't actually want the end product they can't customize. And so to your point around feature requests, if we're selling to a non-developer, actually a lot of feature requests probably be a lot more specific. They'd probably say like, hey, I want specifically X or specifically Y or specifically Z, and please do that for me and I will buy. Instead, because we were selling to developers, what developers actually want is they say, hey, I want you to build me sort of the APIs or SDKs such that I can go build X with a retool. And that turns out to be sort of a lot more generalizable. So for example, a developer might say, hey, I want a map component because with the map component, I can start displaying uh, if I'm DoorDash, for example, deliveries are going. Or if I'm Lyft or Uber, for example, I can display where my drivers are. Or if I'm Airbnb, I can display where all the uh, properties are. Now, if we're selling to a non-developer, they might say something like, hey, I want you to go build me an app that shows where all my drivers are or my orders are going. And that's actually not what the developer wants. The developer says, give me the building block of the map and I will figure out how to leverage this map component such that I can build the app that I want. And so selling to developers has actually allowed us to sort of build more of these primitives. And so we today are very customer-driven in our development, but we are customer-driven in the sense that we are always building sort of frameworks and APIs and SDKs such that developers can use this as sort of the generalizable SDKs that all of our customers can use. And so, you know, maybe it's the case that, you know, for example, Airbnb might be more likely to use a map than, let's say, a tutoring company. Anything that we build ends up being used by sort of a large percentage of our customer base. And that is only possible 
because we sell to developers. Because developers don't actually want us building the exact end product. They want us giving them sort of these building blocks that they themselves can assemble. And so for us, from sort of a product prioritization perspective, we always prioritize basically what are the building blocks that we can build that would enable sort of the greatest good for the greatest number of customers. And that was sort of our North Star. And that is actually quite clarifying because when we think about all the features that we build, we basically never build any sort of quote-unquote consulting features or we never build anything for any one particular customer. What ends up happening is anything that we end up building for one you know, particular customer ends up being used by maybe 30% of our customer base. So for example, DoorDash wanted audit logs because uh, they wanted to sort of see what people are doing inside of the product. Let's say when someone refunds an order or gives someone a credit, they want to know who did that, basically. That's a simple feature that we built very rapidly. Uh, I think we built that in a week or something. And that feature is now used by probably 50, 60% of retail customers today. And so the features that we build are sort of these building block features, basically, that could be used by a lot of customers rather than any one-off feature. I think we basically have not built one-off features because our customers can build it themselves if we give them the necessary building blocks. That strikes me as an amazing property of having developers as your customers is that you get to build building blocks, you get to build components rather than having to build like separate one-off features. Was that a conscious choice always for you that developers were your audience? How did you decide that? It was. And it's funny because today it's so obviously a part of Retool. And it's, I think, the cause of the early success that we've had thus far. Still very early days, a lot to prove out, but certainly developers have... Our focus on developers, I think, has really helped us a lot. But if we look back five years when Retool first started, it was actually really not obvious. It was it was actually a bad idea. Most people thought it was a bad idea, actually. Why? Another sort of way of pitching Retool instead of Excel Hybrid Primitives is you can say, hey, we are creating a drag-and-drop way such that developers can code faster, let's say. And developers are allergic to drag and drop. They hate drag and drop. I remember, you know, as a developer, if you told me, hey, you should build this website via, you know, a drag and drop way, for example, I'd be like, oh, that's not for me. Like, that's for marketers. Like, I would never touch a drag and drop tool. I'm a hardcore engineer. Like, I write code. And so the idea of Retool actually sounded like quite a bad one, which is we're going to teach people who already know how to code, but we're going to change their mind about how they should code. In fact, we're going to sort of tell them that drag and drop is a better way of coding, which is completely antithetical to sort of their mental model of how coding is done. And I remember, actually an RYC batch, I think we had maybe a few other companies actually come up to us and say, hey, we tried this idea before. It's not going to work. Like it's not going to work for X reason or Y reason. And one reason someone told us that it was not going to work was because they said, you're basically going to become a consulting shop. You are going to basically be the one building all the apps and uh, it's not a SaaS business. So you should probably stop now. Uh, I would recommend that. We tried it two years ago and we pivoted ourselves. This is where I think sort of, again, the first principles thinking is so interesting because it's like my sort of theory of starting startups essentially is you have to have differentiated beliefs about the world that also happen to lead to success. Because if you believe your beliefs are the averagely you know, accepted belief uh, that everyone else has, there's kind of no reason why you're going to find success when everyone else did not. And so my belief basically is I think we had maybe a few of these core beliefs that were, I think, quite maybe controversial or non-obvious that a lot of people would disagree with at the time. And that has now led us to success. Uh, so for example, one, I think, is the developer focus. Another line that a lot of people might say is more promising than what Retool initially uh, focused on is they could say, well, we're not focused on developers. You should actually focus on non-developers because they have no alternative. A developer can actually always go and write and learn React, for example. And so the alternative is actually not that bad. Like you're saving them a bit of time, but they have alternative. Whereas if you focus on, let's say, people who actually 
cannot code, then you're quote unquote democratizing programming because these people have no alternative. Sort of, it'll be a stickier product or a more valuable product, for example. So there's a lot of reasons why you might want to sort of start a product like Ritual and sell to non-developers. But we thought that actually, when you're building complicated apps, the only way to build a complicated app is by actually writing code, and the only way to do that is by selling to a developer, basically. And so that's an example where the commonly accepted, because I think you know when we started in 2017, what was I think more in vogue at that point was really quote unquote democratizing programming. And we were like, no, actually, we are squarely focused on the developer, and we think that will lead us to more success than focusing on the non-developer. So I think we had maybe three or four of these kind of core beliefs. The developer focus is one of them that I think really has led to our success. That's an awesome story about just your contrarian beliefs at the time. How did you get developers over this thing about drag and drop? Like, how did you get them to love drag and drop? It's probably two things. First one is probably developers hate building internal tools. So it turns out the developers hate building internal tools more than they hate drag and drop systems. The second is that if you look at the history of programming over the past 20, 30, 40 years, there's actually been relatively little innovation in programming. If you think about the last major change or the last few major changes, for example, going from punched cards to actually assembly, that was a pretty big change for the whole computing industry because now you don't have to wait 13 hours for your code to compile and for it to run and then you come back the next day and then it turns out there's a bug, and you have to go fix it again. Like the iteration speed, you know, was uh, sort of iteration like was so long back when we had punched cards. Um, then we move to assembly. Assembly is like a higher level; it's a lot faster. And then you go from assembly to something like a C, for example, and that's a big change as well. And then C has gone to you know something like a you know like a Java. Java has now gone to uh, sort of higher level languages like a Python or a JavaScript. But actually, if you look back, you know, ten, twenty years, there has been relatively little innovation. Like sort of what an engineer does today versus what an engineer did ten years ago versus twenty years ago. It's kind of the same, actually. Like, you know, today, in order to build a simple CRUD app, you have to manage sort of a giant package JSON file. You have to sort of install 30 dependencies. You have to go debug all of that. And then when things break, when versions are wrong, like building a simple CRUD app that writes back to a database or an API probably takes a few hours, if not, you know, a week or two, if you're sort of you know, trying to deploy this in sort of a production environment. And to us, that seems just ridiculous. To us, you should be able to get a CRUD app going in like five, 10 minutes with, you know, permissions, with connecting to APIs, you know, all sort of built in, basically. And so I think the higher level nature retool is such a different way of programming. And I think we think sort of such a better way of programming. I think that has really helped get developers on board as well. I can see the computer science and philosophy things coming together here in that answer. Love that. Let's move more towards larger customers, because I know, David, that you actually had some enterprise customers fairly early on, which I think is relatively uncommon for startups. So how did that happen? And did you always sort of know that these Fortune 500-ish companies were going to be target customers for you? Initially, no. Initially, we started the company, we were thinking it was sort of a fast way to build internal apps for small companies, basically. And it was actually quite surprising to us to find that the problem was actually even larger in these larger companies. And the reason for that is that if you think about sort of all the Silicon Valley companies, or, you know, our job, essentially, you know, whether it's a Dropbox or a Retool or any other sort of software company in Silicon Valley, our job is to sell software. And we are building software and selling it. That's how we all make money. Even Google or Facebook, that's how they make money as well. Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, et cetera. Selling software is our business model, basically, in Silicon Valley. That's it. If you actually zoom out and look at sort of most companies in the world, most companies are not software companies. If you look at, let's say, like an NBC, for example, one of our customers, or a Jaguar Land Rover, another one of our customers, these companies are sort of not software companies. They're actually, you know, manufacturing cars. They make money by selling cars or by being media companies. But it turns out, actually, that these companies have a ton of software engineers, and all their software engineers... All they do day in and day out basically is build internal software. And so when we sort of look at what percent of software in the world is actually internal versus external, actually most software in the world is actually internal facing, which is kind of an unexpected fact that you might not know if you're in Silicon Valley. 
Uh, once we discovered that, we're like, wow, like this is a ginormous market. Like if we can change how the way that 50% of all software is built, that would be really incredible. And maybe give you one specific example of this, uh, sort of how big the market is. One of our early customers, maybe customer number four or five, something like that, they are a fortune, maybe like number 250 or so. So, you know, sort of average fortune 500 company, basically. Um, they have around 120,000 employees. Every year, they spend $400 million building internal tools. You know, that's kind of sounds unbelievable. How would you spend four, you know, half a billion dollars building internal software? And when you peel it back, it actually makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, in their company of 125K people, around about 2K of them are software engineers. And if you sort of divide, you know, $400 million by 2,000 software engineers, actually that spend is basically 200K per software engineer, which actually is quite a reasonable sort of software engineering salary. And all they do day in and day out is build internal software. And so that gives you a sense like sort of the market for internal software is ginormously large and it's something that you don't really see. And so upon discovering that sort of most software actually is internal software, I think that was really energizing for us uh, because if we can convince people and uh, become actually the way all the software is built, that would be so impactful. And I think that is uh, what motivates a lot of us today. Let's talk about, you know, the concept of product market fit, because one of the things that I think is so interesting about your story, David, is to me, when I hear this, it feels like you found product market fit pretty quickly. You had two customers and then you had five and then you had 10 and everybody, you know, is sort of digging the same value prop. But I know that when you've talked about it, you've said, well, we actually weren't sure we had product market fit for maybe a long time. Can you unpack that for us? Like, what is your internal bar for product market fit? Maybe I'll zoom back a little bit or rewind back a little bit and answer that question. So product market fit did not come that easily, actually. It requires a lot of, I think, flexibility, but also strong opinions. I think going back to sort of my theory of startups, I think you need to have strong opinions about a few things that will hopefully lead you to success. But you also have to be flexible about some other things, too. So sort of the combination, I think, is a very powerful one. So you want to be outcomes oriented, but you want to have sort of a few values that you sort of deeply believe. For us, for example, developer first is one of them. To give you a sense of sort of early, you know, journey and product market fit for us. When we first started Retool, it was actually not totally evident what kind of developer would be the market for Retool. Um, it turns out today, front-end developers, back-end developers, and, you know, sort of React developers or even JavaScript developers overall, I would say, is sort of major market for us. But it was actually not evident to us that was the case at the beginning. At the beginning, actually, I remember, and this, I think, gets also to a sense of the space of decisions you can make really is quite large. So if you think about Retool at the beginning, one hypothesis we had, actually, was, hey, Retool as a product actually is kind of similar to something like a FileMaker, for example, or a Microsoft Access or a Visual Basic. And so what we should do is actually we should go find customers of FileMaker and try to convince them to use Retool. That seems sort of like a plausible path to finding product market fit. And I remember I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Like, let's try that. Let's see what happens. I, you know, I have a lot of confidence this is going to work. And so uh, what I did is I didn't know any FileMaker developers. So I went on LinkedIn, basically, found a sort of few FileMaker user groups. And I was like, let me go join these groups, basically. So I applied as a sort of FileMaker developer and I infiltrated these groups. And then uh, once I got it, I was like, okay, great. You know, there's thousand members here. Let's see who's here. Let's go try to find where they work and maybe send them some cold emails. And we did that. And I think we probably said, you know, a few hundred cold emails. I think we got like a, you know, 1% reply rate, something like that. But, you know, sent a few hundred, so we got like three replies or something. I think I got one call out of that. And in that one call, the FileMaker developer that we talked to basically said, this is a horrible idea. Uh, I cannot believe you're working on this idea. Like, FileMaker is great. Why would I ever use anything but FileMaker? If I were you, I would not waste your time on this. This is like a dead-end idea. We heard that. We're like, okay, well, you know, it's kind of demotivating to hear that you're telling us a startup idea so bad, you know, despite us thinking that you might have been in sort of our target market and we would have found product market by you. 
And that's, I think, a good example of um, product market fit is not just the product, but it's actually also the market that you sell to. And, you know, retools today actually does not really sell to FileMaker developers. We sell to React developers nowadays, for example, and we're sort of fairly successful doing that. Finding product market fit is not like, you know, we sort of turn on the product and great, you know, product market fit happens. Instead, it's sort of very much like iterative cycle. Like, hey, we believe as developers that there is value in the product like this. Now it is, let us go find the market that is sort of uh, most interested in a product like this. I think this kind of goes to sort of the you know, strong beliefs, but maybe sort of you need to be sort of flexible with how you achieve your outcomes uh, as well, which is we're like, okay, well, great. Maybe file market developers is actually not. We sort of believe that it might be the case that they were the market, but they're not the market. So let's try somewhere else. And so we're like, okay, well, maybe CTOs of uh, operationally heavy companies. Let's try that. So we emailed, for example, like a DoorDash or a Brex or a Rappi, and that really worked. And, you know, we probably tried a few other things as well. But so that, I think, gets the sense that sort of the space of all the things you could try to start up really is quite large. And you have to sort of have a few core beliefs that guide you, you know, Everyone emailed was basically a developer. We never emailed non-developers. But even within sort of the developer umbrella, there are sort of a lot of types of developers. And we were quite flexible about, okay, well, that did not work for these reasons. What do we learn from that? How do we apply that to sort of the next audience that we go after? You know, the point that you mentioned earlier, 10, 20 customers build internal tools lightning fast. That's resonating. Wasn't that product market fit or you don't think that was? When did you really start to feel like you had it? I think we are quite paranoid. Every customer we had uh, in the early days felt very one-off. And this is why, really, it felt sort of like every customer was our last customer. Because it's like, wow, DoorDash is building this. Brex is building this. X company is building Y. Like, this feels totally different. Because, like, are, are we actually building sort of a generic product or a platform that can be used by all these companies? It was really unclear. Because it was all outbound at the beginning, that was actually very good. I'm very happy we ended up doing that because I think that really built a sort of strong muscle uh, for us. Because it was all outbound, like if we didn't do anything, the company would die. I mean, most startups die. And so it was sort of like we had to constantly apply effort in order to sort of keep the ball rolling forward. And it was kind of like pushing a giant stone uphill. And if you stop pushing, it'll start rolling back down sort of fairly rapidly. And so... For us, that was our experience uh, in the early days, or maybe you know zero to a few million dollars of ARR. And even I think at, I think even at like maybe ten million, maybe even twenty million of ARR. I think we were actually, you know, I remember I was still pretty concerned about that. I was like, hey, you know, was ten million ARR part of market fit? No, I'm actually not sure. I think again, maybe that goes to paranoia. I think you always have to be paranoid about sort of what your market is, how specific your market is, et cetera. So for example, we like to think that the TAM for retool is ginormously large because it's, you know, half of all software basically. But when we actually think about, you know, how do we tackle that TAM? You know, what is the initial TAM that we want to go for? Maybe it's, you know, the initial one, maybe it was CTOs or VPEs at operationally heavy companies. How big is that TAM, for example? You know, how saturated are we today? If we think about some more customers today in fintech, we now have Stripe, Coinbase, Plaid, Chime, Ramp, Brex, all those customers. Are we saturated there? Like, should we be thinking about like, hey, have we saturated the TAM? Should we move on to other markets? So I think you have to be sort of very paranoid about this. And I think for someone who is paranoid, admission of product market fit does not come easily. Because to me, when I hear Peter Zuckerman talk about product market fit, I'm like, wow, it seems like life is good. You can just go sell off to the sunset. You don't have to worry about anything at that point. It was not like that for us. Like we had a lot of things that we were thinking very critically about, even though we were at, you know, 10, 20 and sort of ARR. So maybe I viewed product market fit as sort of a lack of stress or a lack of worry or something or a lack of paranoia. And, in, you know, if you define it that way, I think you should always be paranoid. <laughs> it could be uh, your mentality. Like, I, I think this analogy of feeling like you're pushing the rock up the hill and pushing and pushing and pushing it. And I think for some people, you know, when it starts to feel like it's rolling down the hill, that's like product market fit. But maybe it's just how you are. Like, are you still feeling like you're pushing it and pushing it uphill and it's never started to roll down? Yeah. 
I quite like biking. Uh, and so I think maybe biking is a good analogy for this, which is you can always go faster. You know, it's great. You can go up Hawk Hill, let's say seven minutes, but why not six? I kind of think of a startup as that too. And I think maybe one more thing that really motivates me is about starting a startup is that if we were just building an average company, I wouldn't be here. Like I wouldn't be building this company. And I think this is true for a lot of the team as well. I think we sort of have this unique opportunity where programming really, there's been so little innovation. And I'd argue retool is one of the major steps in innovation of programming in the past you know, 10, 20 years. And if we are able to do this, like, you know, the sort of the impact we have in the world and our customers is so phenomenal. And that I think is what really drives us today. Like how can we build sort of an excellent, a truly excellent company that changes how an industry actually operates? And if you think about it that way, you know, sort of you always have to be paranoid. You're never sort of complete. If we think about sort of what percent of software is built to retail today, a few years ago, it was probably like 0.0001%. Today, it's maybe like 0.0005%, for example. But most software in the world is still not built in retail. You know, most engineers in the world have never heard about retool. That, I think, is sort of something that we think a lot about, like sort of what can we be doing better? How can we grow 10x, 100x, 1,000, maybe even 10,000 or even you know, 100,000x from where we are today? So on this topic of product market fit, thinking about advice. For future founders, if you put yourself in the shoes of a founder who is today where you were five years ago, what's a piece of advice to founders on, on how to find product market fit or like mistakes that they need to avoid? Yeah, I have two pieces of advice for early stage founders. One is take more photos. <laughs> <Which is insane. laughs> You're starting to hopefully grow very quickly. And a lot of the early days, I should really document that. But more, more to your question of product market fit. The way we found product market fit was highly iterative and extremely customer driven. And I think you have to be that way. I think we, first of all, were lucky that the product that we're building retool, because we're all engineers at retool. And so we're lucky that sort of, we knew the product, we knew the market. If it weren't for that, I think retool would not have found a product market fit probably because we were the customer sort of, we had taste in the sense that, oh, like, you know, if a customer says, I want an API, you know, I want to be able to connect retool arbitrary APIs. We're like, that makes sense. If I'm a developer, I want that too. So let's go build. Because we're the customer, we sort of have good taste when it comes to strategic decisions for the company and the product. So I think that's one part of it is sort of, you have to know the product into the second is that you really have to iterate very rapidly. And so for us, when I think about our method or playbook of finding product market fit, and today we're starting now three or four new product lines. And for all those four, actually work uh, sort of in various uh, stages of finding a product market fit as well. The way we think about it is uh, you have to be very paranoid, close, and customer driven. And more specifically, what that means is when we started Retool in the product, we instrumented everything. Uh, so you know, at the beginning, we had no customers, uh, no one using Retool. And so we instrumented it such that we sort of added analytics in a very granular fashion so that we could have a very good sense of what people were doing with the product. So you know, if you're dragging a table on, or you're sorting the table, or you're writing a SQL query, uh, or you're writing an API query, whatever else, it was highly instrumented. You're using Mixpanel or you're doing this custom? We actually did this in-house. And the reason we did this in-house was developers, a lot of them have ad block. And so maybe this is another like first principles thing is we want to capture all data. Because that would give us a, you know, in the early days, give us a very good sense of sort of what people are doing with the product, basically. So we actually you know, wrote our own server that was, uh, we sort of send events to that server, basically. And then that server would then send it uh, to a BigQuery or whatever else. Anyways, we wrote that ourselves. And that allowed us to collect a lot of analytics data from our customers. And again, at the beginning, no one was using it. So then we actually set up a sort of Slack webhook that would say, like, every time someone is doing anything in the product, 
product, we immediately get notified in Slack. And we had notifications on our phones at that point, right? So like, we would sort of immediately know whenever, whenever anything happened, basically. And at that point, because no one used the product, like we would get pinged very rarely. And so anytime we actually got pinged, we'd immediately be watching sort of very carefully what they were doing. And that I think was highly helpful because it sort of taught us very quickly what customers are doing because we can't always be next to customers that use the product. I wish we could actually, but we can't. And so this analytics kind of got us closer. And then we set up Sentry such that anytime any error occurred, we'd immediately reach out to the customer. You know, we might even call them actually, or we might even text them. We have the phone number. So, you know, from a customer experience perspective, their experience was really quite intimate in the sense that, you know, using this product, you run into any error, immediately the CEO calls you, you know, a minute later or something like that. And they're like, hey, I saw you run into this problem. Here's the workaround, you know, whatever. We'll fix it this way, basically. Uh, and I think that really built a lot of trust to the early customers. Uh, they were like, okay, well, if something goes wrong, Reels got my back, you know, they'll sort of figure it out. But also taught us so much about the product because we immediately sort of learned what the sort of major buggy areas were, for example, when they were using the products, what was uh, frictionful and what we should actually go and fix, how we should prioritize the product, what the use cases were, et cetera. All these things we learned sort of very rapidly because we had this very tight feedback cycle. And so let's say we found a bug, we'd go fix it, you know, the next hour or something and then do a deploy, you know, in a few hours later or something. And of course, there'd be more bugs, we, you know, we'll figure it out. They have a feature request. And the fact that we called them, they would say like, hey, you know, great, you know, thanks for fixing the bug. But actually also, I was wondering how I could do X or Y or Z or something like that. And we'd be like, oh, great. Well, that's wonderful. Let's help you with that too. And I think the customer intimacy is so helpful because oftentimes in a SaaS product, especially sort of early days, it can actually be hard to get the customer on the phone with you. Because if you're, you know, always texting them and be like, hey, I want to do a build session or, you know, want to use the product together. You're like, no, that's not a priority right now for me. Like, go away. I want to play it on with myself. But when they run into a problem while using the product, from a customer experience perspective, like if you call them at that point, that is the best thing that could possibly happen to them because they're like, well, great. Like I had rent, I was going to use the product. I ran into an error and now you're fixing the error for me and also answering some other questions. That's a great customer experience. Right, right. Especially for an engineer. Yeah, totally. So that was much more effective than trying to send them emails, you know, trying to get them to use the product or whatever else. Instead, it was they could choose when to use the product. And when they had an error, we were immediately on it. And so I think that really built a lot of trust, really helped us find part of market fit in the early days. That's a great example of just being truly customer obsessed. Let's talk about go to market a little bit, David. I know that you're a big proponent in the early days of Outbound. And really, you were selling the product. You and your co-founders, I imagine, selling the product. When did you sort of start to evolve the go-to-market and, and bring in other folks and scale up your approach to go-to-market? There's a lot of uh, mixed advice on this. And we listen to some of it and we regret listening to some of it. And I think this kind of goes again sort of the first principles thing. Advice is very nuanced and advice that works for one company or a group of companies may not necessarily work for you. And we had heard from multiple people that hiring AEs was really important because sort of AEs will unlock, you know, giant contract sizes. They will uh, really help you sell the product. You can focus on the product, you know, your own product development yourself as a founder, you know, stuff like that. And so we hired actually pretty late. Uh, I think the first person in maybe the go-to-market function that joined us, who joined us probably around a million or a million and a half, maybe two, so something like that, you know, sort of low single digits in ARR actually. And so we ourselves had already sold maybe 40, 50, 60 customers at that point. It was going basically. And I remember the advice that we got, and uh, this is not a knock on the advice. The advice is true and good advice. Like, you know, for, it came from great people, like for example, Peter from Segment, who had told us that hiring AE, I think was sort of one of the biggest unlocks he had. And he he was initially very skeptical of hiring AEs. He was like, how can AE sell sort of a product uh, like segment that's so technical? And they hired an AE and AE crushed it. They sort of did extremely well and was sort of a major revenue unlock for our segment as a company. And so, you know, we heard this advice. We heard advice from a few other people. I and mean, we're like, okay, let's go hire an AE. And to be honest, we messed up. It was not effective. And it was because we were not, I think, first principled enough in thinking about how an AE can help and how an AE cannot help. 
And for us, at that point in the sales process, kind of going back to what we're talking about, Recoil is a very broad, very horizontal product. And so it is actually quite a difficult product to sell if you don't have sort of the dynamicism or you don't have total knowledge of the product that I, as a founder, would have. And so the sort of early sales team that we brought on were actually, they were all pretty unsuccessful. And it's not their fault. It was actually our fault in the sense that the product itself was just a difficult one to sell. And it required sort of extreme broad knowledge of developers, of customers, of use cases. And it was just a very challenging product for anyone, for any sort of AE to sell. What ended up happening was we ended up sort of hiring initially one, then two, then three, actually, people who I would say they were maybe comp sci major minors, basically. So they sort of studied comp sci in college, but they were uh, more interested in the commercial side than being a software engineer. So more interested in business, let's say, than necessarily in software engineering. We hired one profile like this, and we initially were not sure whether this person could learn to sell retool, but they actually were much more effective. And the reason for that is I think that technical background, they were very dynamic and they were very good at reacting on the spot or sort of figuring out what parts of the product were applicable, what parts were not, how to talk about the product, how to talk to engineers. That was much more effective for us than sort of traditional AEs. Our early go-to-market team basically looked like three of those profiles. I think we got to, even with just two of those profiles, I think we probably got to like five or eight or nine or even 10, something like that in ARR basically. Then we hired a head of sales, probably around that point, maybe between five and 10, something like that. And then scaled sort of the learnings that we had from these two or three people. And then we started building an AE team after that. I think the first AE that we hired at that point was probably maybe like around 10 mil ARR or something. We hired our first AE. The way that you were thinking about it then, does that continue on today? Are you still pretty true to that, that it's a very technical sale done by technically fluent people? It is, I think, 50% true today. And so, for example, a lot of our sales calls, we have a sales engineer that sits there along with the account executive, a sort of traditional AE pairing. That said, I think we have invested a lot of resources in training, also marketing materials and even category creation because half of retail customers who end up using today actually had users who had a previous job. And so there's just a lot more knowledge of retail in the market today, which I think really helps a lot. For example, a recent customer of ours that signed maybe just a few weeks ago, actually, is Chime. That champion that had bought Retool at Chime had actually used Retool at Brex already. And so that's a good example where the sales process was actually a lot simpler in that case because they were actually so bought in on the product because the impact we've had on Brex has really been quite phenomenal. And so they were like, we want a similar impact at Chime as well. And so the sales motion changes, I think, as the product becomes more mature, as the market becomes more aware of the product offering. And so today, I think it's changed and will continue to change probably over the next three, four, five years. Let's talk about this idea of operational excellence, which is something that I think you have a lot of thoughts on. And you know, you've said that the job of a CEO pre-product market fit is different than the job of a CEO post-product market fit. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so Ali Rogani, who is a YC continuity, he has a great blog post about this. His thesis is, and I think it's completely a correct one and a very astute one, is that your first job as a startup CEO, when you know you're two people, five people, whatever, is to go build a product and to find product market fit. Because if you don't find product market fit, nothing else matters. Your startup will die. You don't find product market fit. But once you find product market fit, then your job as the CEO actually is not necessarily to even you know maximize product market fit or do the exploration. Instead, it actually is to build a company that can repeatably achieve success in that product market fit. And uh, that is actually quite a mindset shift. You know, every day you are talking to customers and sort of working very closely with them and then even building the product sometimes, changing all the way to how can I build the machine that builds uh, the product and goes and finds more customers. 
And that, I think, is a very interesting postpartum mark of a transition. And to me, it's sort of an extremely interesting and exciting one, in the sense that, as we discussed before, I think when I think about what excites me about Ritual today, it is, can we build a truly excellent company that does sales at the highest level. Like we are not interested in growing on the average of what SaaS companies grow. So it's like a triple, triple, double, 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 for example. The average company that goes to IPO actually grows, you know, triple, triple, double, double, double. So like one, three, nine, 18, 36, 72, which I mean, these companies are IPO companies, right? So like they're pretty good companies actually. And yet for us, it's like, hey, you know, that's actually not enough. Can we actually go further than that? Sort of what does truly excellent look like? What if we triple, 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 we triple four is in a row. I think the idea of sort of how can we operate excellently, whether it's from sort of a sales metrics perspective or go to market perspective or from a product perspective, how do you sort of launch new product lines early on in your company and have them achieve product market and have them grow hopefully actually faster than what retool even grew in the early days? I think that the idea of sort of building a machine that can accomplish that, building a team that can go actually build a new product that can go find product market fit, I think that really is my job and our job as a company today. It's like we sort of repeatably launch products that find product market fit and achieve success, get to 100 billion ARR in a few years. I mean, that I think is really exciting. So that's one reason why we're so interested in operating excellence. The second is that, and this kind of goes to sort of our customers actually, is we help a lot of our customers achieve operational excellence. And that I think is also really important to a lot of our customers too. The sense that if we think about, you know, for example, why a company like Brex is able to scale so quickly, I think part of that is because they have truly great internal software. And if you think about the world of business today, if you will, most businesses are shockingly inefficient. And I mean, I'm sure retail is shockingly inefficient. I'm sure first round, I'm sure sort of most companies listening to this call are shockingly inefficient. Like we have sort of spreadsheets that are floating around. We're doing CSV exports daily. That gives you a sense sort of like there's so much room for software to enable companies to become operationally excellent. And we think about the impact the software has had over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years on you know, all of us. Uh, if you think about a company like DoorDash, for example, the way that we place an order on DoorDash is via software. The way DoorDash fulfills that order is via software, internal software. The way the restaurant even sort of goes about procuring food or, you know, procuring supplies, it's all via so software. It's not a tremendous impact in the past 50 years. But even in the next 10 or 20 years, we think software will have a bigger impact. All the apps that are being built today, all the spreadsheets that are getting replaced by sort of real software applications, that I think to some extent is the mission of Retool is how can we sort of bring the power of software that used to be locked behind, you know, get a software engineer spend a lot of time building all the software. Now you could have sort of any app that you want in a few minutes, in a few days. What does that mean for the world? That's something that I think gets us, it gets a lot of our customers really excited is it allows a company to scale so rapidly. Got it. Makes sense. Let's talk about what's ahead and what's next for Retool. What are you thinking about today as you're running the company and what do you think about what's ahead? So Retool, despite the phenomenal growth we've had over the past few years, it's really just getting started. Again, if we sort of think about what percent of software is, or even if you think about what percent of internal software is built in a retool, most people in the world, most engineers in the world, have never heard about retool. Even most engineers building internal software have never heard about retool. And so for us, sort of with you know, such an incredibly large TAM, the goal really is how do we get more awareness for retool? How do we get more people aware uh, and sort of using retool? And a lot of that, I think, comes down to sort of building a really great product, expanding a product offering. So today, for example, retool is uh, sort of more used for the front end, it's sort of a front and builder. We want to expand out into backends. We're expanding onto mobile apps right now. We're expanding onto workflows in the backend. We're expanding out to sort of backend storage, et cetera. Two or three product lines actually we're launching in the next actually, you know, two, three months. And so 
finding product market fit for those, getting those to you know 10, 20, 50, 100 million AR one day, like that's sort of what we're very focused on. But also improving the core product. If we sort of look at the core product itself, there's so much room for us to improve that. And so many things we have to think about from first principles. Again, do we reinvent it? Should we adopt best practices? A good example is uh, when you think about retool as a product, it's kind of like a new way of developing software, basically. And thinking about how does testing fit into that? How does something like multiplayer fit into that? How does, for example, observability, how does hooking to Datadog, you know, fit into that? These are all sort of interesting questions. How do you version control a visual app like that, that, you know, has less code than sort of a React app? These are all sort of interesting products that we're working on. But really, the goal is get retool in front of more people and eventually, hopefully, become the way all of the software is built. Uh, if we look back in 10 years and say, wow, you know, half of all internal software is built in retool today, I think uh, that would be such an incredible moment for us to look back and such an incredible sort of North Star for us to go to. David, thank you for being here today. So many great stories. I think so many lessons that are applicable to future founders. So really appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Todd, for having me.